I think what happens um, naturally because of my time on stage um, is I, I sort of view everything from an end user, from an audience perspective. And so when I am training or I'm teaching um, or even as I'm observing things that are going on, I'm looking at things, I'm filtering it through the uh, through that audience perspective. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Calling all thrill makers, fun creators, and attraction pros. Get ready for the ride of a lifetime at IAPA Expo 2023, the global attractions industry's premier event. Join us in Orlando, November 13th to the 17th for a week of learning, networking, and exploring trends and new technologies. Discover innovative solutions for growth that will supercharge your business and enhance your career. Register by November 10th at iapa.org slash iapaexpo. That's I-A-A-P-A dot org slash I-A-A-P-A-E-X-P-O to save up to 30% and get an additional $10 off with the code APROS. That's A-P-R-O-S. We'll be there and we hope to see you too. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Well, Josh, today... Unlike any other day, I am fantastic. Today and today only. <laughs> Question for you. You got it. So we're here hosting this podcast, right? I guess that makes us podcast hosts, right? I think so. I think some people might might <laughs> might claim that could be true, right? Are we performing in the role of podcast hosts in this moment right now? I would say we are performing that role, but I would also say that we're doing it very authentically. I agree. Yes. So where this is going, I think, is that our amazing guest today, Adria Gibbs, talks about both performing a role at work, but also combining that with being authentic and aligning what it is that you do with the values of the organization you're working with, or in our case, the Attraction Pros podcast. So is that kind of where you were where you were leading? Yeah, totally. And and in every instance in our life, we're performing the role that we're in in that moment. We're doing it authentically, but also fitting the parameters. So, like, for instance, at the end of the day, when your wife Linda goes, So Matt, you know, how was your day today? <laughs> Do you respond the same way that when I ask you, hey, Matt, how's it going? Uh, I do not say fantastically very often. You're Linda. going to now. <laughs> I am now. I am now. Um, but, you know, it's in it's interesting because now that you put it in that context, I think about the various things that I do during the day, and I may play different roles. Like I've got one job as Matt Heller of Performance Optimist Consulting, and of course, you know, co-host of the Attraction Pros podcast. So maybe that's two jobs, if you will. Um, sure. But right now I'm performing the role of a podcast host. Um, earlier, I was a coach to someone. Um, you know, down the road, couple in a couple of days, I'll be doing a training program. So then I'm a facilitator. So I'm still the same person. I feel like I authentically align with all those different things. But you could probably also say that I'm performing in a different way for all those different entities. Does that make sense? That that is that is exactly what I was looking for. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is so fascinating when we really think about it, because uh, you would think that that perhaps would conflict with authenticity, but it doesn't, because you're you're authentically in that role, even if there's a slight variation of Matt Heller in all those instances that uh, that you mentioned. I think where it would conflict, and sometimes this is how my brain works, is it would conflict if, first of all, I didn't love the attractions industry, 
right? Mm. Then I couldn't be nearly as authentic. Um, If I didn't enjoy doing the podcast with you and interviewing all these folks, then I, it would be harder for me to be authentic. If I didn't have a natural um, uh, interest in people and helping them develop, that wouldn't be nearly as authentic. Like I, I take you, for example, your book about the hospitality mentality, right? You notice it's not about car sales, right? It's not about banking. It's not about manufacturing. Those are not your, your authentic sweet spots for where you are and what your interests are, but you perform the role of an author. And now you go and you present um, training modules based on that book and, you know, focusing on, so that's another role that you're kind of playing, but still very authentic to who you are and what you believe in. Yes. And thank you for the plug to my book and my business. So thank you for that. And you mentioned our guest today, Adria Gibbs, CEO, artistic director, experience consultant of Original Productions. And, you know, she talks about kind of the the intersection between uh, the creative side of the business and the operations side of the business. So I think everything that we're talking about really ties in with that nicely because her, her background is in entertainment. And uh, and then as she kind of built out productions and, and took on you know the leadership roles within entertainment roles or within entertainment departments, uh, that then led into the operational side of the business, which then leads us right to the people side of the business. So this is a very people centric interview. I would say it's very wide ranging. We covered a lot of ground. I, I also have to say that that Adria shared incredible stories of of just her her past, her her upbringing, her career career development, and lessons that she learned along the way that are just widely applicable to to everyone who's tuning into this. And one of the things that sort of is a a through line to all of those things is the way that she embraces diversity. Um, and she tells amazing stories again about her upbringing and and her very diverse work experience that really has shaped those thoughts to just be, you know, kind of what she feels is the right thing to do. It's not like she read a, a pamphlet and said, oh, we need to be diverse, right? Yeah. You know, this is just part of who she is, very authentic to her. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is one of those interviews that felt like had so many like tipping off points that we could have gone so deep into so many directions that... If this was like Joe Rogan and we could talk for three hours, I think we, you know, we could have easily have, you know, filled all that time. But, uh, um, you know, like like we often say to our guests, like maybe we'll, you know, we'll we'll schedule a part two sometime in the future. So, uh, I you know it's just a, I mean, she she just has so much, just amazing insights to share. And so, is it time to get to those insights? I think it's time for Adria to play the role of a podcast guest. <laughs> Here we go. Hey, Adria, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And thanks for having me, Matt and Josh. I'm so excited to be here. I think I'm excited to be here. Let's see how those questions go. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to do great. Um, First question should be relatively easy. Tell us who you are and what it is that you do. I don't know. For people that do know me, that's kind of a loaded question, I think. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I'm still trying to sort out what I do. So um, actually, I I guess the easiest thing to say is I'm sort of a hybrid of sorts, uh, you know, working within several industries and sectors, and I kind of combine my creative, uh, my creative side with my operational side uh, to sort of elevate guest and employee experiences. And um, I don't know, how's that for an answer? I guess I'm I'm perhaps uh, hyper-focused of late on really looking at things like behavioral training and hiring and, um, you know, operational excellence and people understanding biases and um, things like mental health or uh, multi-level learning opportunities. So really kind of taking um, taking a look at the human element, you know, how how we as people how we as people work and function in our worlds to the best of our capabilities. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, I, I think there's there's so much to unpack here and we can go down so many different directions. And I, and I feel like we probably will over the course of this conversation and thinking of, of just sort of a starting point here, would love to talk about maybe the intersection between the creative and the operational side. Cause I feel like those are, those are often areas of the business that perhaps aren't necessarily had in the same conversations. So I'm curious if, yeah. if you can kind of help help align this and understand where uh, where they intersect. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is, is I've been um, 
I think because I started in the entertainment realm to start with, right? I started um, at Disneyland. That was my first park of note. And uh, I worked in the entertainment division, the character department specifically. And and uh, from there, I developed as a choreographer and a director and a writer and a performer um, on a level that included major theatricals. So it, it was a, a really interesting curve for me, but because um, I like to do things like eat and pay my bills, I had to figure out what to do between contracts. And between contracts, um, I took the opportunities that were, that kind of came my way um, to use as a way to inform myself on a growth trajectory, right? In a, in a variety of different disciplines. So everything from child development, um, I did a lot of work in the child development realm, writing and developing programming and learning all about that piece of it uh, in the fitness realm. I worked uh, very heavily um, as a personal trainer and a group fitness instructor, and again, developing new and unique programming that tied a variety of educational components back into fitness, uh, particularly for children. Um, I worked in a construction office for a long time, doing uh, change orders. So I've learned all about the value of knowing what you're doing ahead of time operationally when you're building out something or structuring something so that you can have those um, save money essentially on your on your building budget. So, uh, so and then just straight operations, you know, understanding what it is to be uh, a supervisor, a manager, um, a director, um, a general manager and learning the skills that actually build all that up. So I've got this unique balance between the creative side and the operational side. And there's a lot of people that only know me from one aspect or the other aspect. But what I try to bring particularly into the amusement industry is that combination of being able to look at maybe um, something from the beginning like Blue Sky and look at it with operational intent, but creative overview so that we're continuing to innovate um, the artistic side of what we're doing without losing the integrity, but employ things that actually functionally make things better for both guests and employees. Well said. All right. Oh, I'm going, did that make any sense at all? <laughs> Absolutely. Entirely, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, in fact, there, there's something in there that I wanted to to kind of dive into a little deeper. You know, your performance background, um, you know, it's what we do in, in the entertainment world, right? Whether we're run, running a ride, we're still kind of performing, you know, our job, but we're, we're potentially also, you know, putting on a show for other people. Uh, I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts or maybe your approach for taking that experience as a performer and now using that to inform all the things you do, whether it's creative or operational or, um, you know, retail or all the different areas that you're focused on. Um, because what I've found is that, you know, from a performer's perspective as a drummer and a musician, I really feel like that informs so much of what I do. So I'm curious about your outlook on that as well. Uh, I think what happens um, naturally because of my time on stage um, is I, I sort of view everything from an end user, from an audience perspective. And so when I am training or I'm teaching um, or even as I'm observing things that are going on, I'm looking at things, I'm filtering it through the uh, through that audience perspective. How are people reacting and responding? And I know that by myself keeping my energy level up, by listening, by observing, by um, really understanding this, the space I'm in in that particular moment, which is very much what you have to do when you're on stage, right? If, if, you, if, you, if your mind wanders when you're in the middle of the show, you drop your lines, you might get in a, into a position where you cause injury to somebody else or injury to yourself uh, or just throw off the whole performance to boot. So I, I think that naturally that has become a part of just my character and and how i approach things holistically um if if that answers your question absolutely yep 
so what it kind of reminded me of is um, we we had uh, Joe Pine on the podcast not not too long ago, the co-author of the Experience Economy, and in that book there's there's a chapter called Work is Theater, and the the idea behind it was was like it's like no, this is not just like an analogy. It's literally when you're at work, you are you are in character. You are you are on stage, whether your company calls that on stage or if you're if you're in an yeah. office. And, and I'm kind of curious as far as you know, maybe your thoughts on that is you know. A supervisor is acting the part of a supervisor when they are in their supervisor role. Same thing with a manager, with a with a with a director. So curious as far as really how that that bleeds over, and everyone, whether they they know it or not, are performing in some aspect. I think that people have a tendency to separate a performer from a job role. Um, we don't necessarily we, we don't necessarily think of ourselves as being performers when we're at our work environment. Um, but to your point, Josh, yeah, you're absolutely right. We are. And I know that like when I was a general manager in particular, um, and I use this in my training mod module now too, when I'm talking, especially to frontline team members, reminding them that when they come in and punch in the clock, they're punching out their, their, their daily life. They're punching out their real life and they're punching into whatever it is they're going to be doing for the day. So if they've had a fight with their spouse, if they had an altercation with somebody at the coffee shop, right, they didn't get the right drink. Um, if they just got up on the wrong side of the bed and nothing was going right in the morning, when you punch in, it's your opportunity to take all that negativity and actually put it on your time card and stick it in the slot and leave it there. And at the end of the day, you're welcome to pick it up and take it with you as you leave. But you should give yourself the opportunity to have a fresh start when you walk in. And I think that kind of attitude really helps people to maneuver through a, a daily environment, particularly in our industry, that has a, a lot of uh, things getting thrown at you positively and negatively um, throughout the day. A lot of unexpected entities will arise, um, You know, whether that's somebody that you know, just wants one more ride before you shut down at the end of the night, whether it's somebody that, um, you know, needs assistance finding a restroom, whether it's somebody that has a compliment for you uh, or a team member maybe that, you know, wants to share something uh, special alongside you. We don't know what's going to come down the pipeline, but we do have the opportunity to, um, you know, perform throughout the day in whatever role we take on. And then return to our our real selves, if you will, um, when we leave work. Well, Adria, one of the things that this brings up for me is the word that gets thrown around a lot now, which is authenticity, right? We mm -hmm. want people to be authentic. So how do we balance kind of performing that role with also being authentic? How do you how do you kind of justify those two? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the role often I think the word authenticity um the definition of it means different things to different people. And so depending on how you're framing it, you know, are you authentic in your work environment? Meaning, are you aligning with what your work environment is presenting, especially if you're in a themed location? Or are you being authentic and true to yourself, who you are within the confines of what your work will allow you to do, right? I mean, if you're a crabby, grumpy person by nature, that's probably not necessarily something that your employer wants to have you demonstrate as part of who you are when you're out working amongst gifts. However, if you are in a role, like let's say it's a minor or let's say it's it's some type of, you know, character that maybe has a little bit of crabbiness to them, then perhaps that is appropriate. So I think it I think it all comes down to what the culture is that you are working in, what the environment is that you're working in, and what authenticity means inside the confines of that particular apparatus. Bringing that into kind of, you mentioned uh, how, how it impacts the company culture. I'm wondering perhaps what, what steps leaders can take proactively to embrace to encourage to empower authenticity within their of, of their employees perhaps within the parameters of what their what their job role might be you know i think that's kind of a loaded question josh to be honest with you um <laughs> because Fair. i think a lot of, i think a lot, <laughs> i think a lot of organizations actually need to revisit what their culture is um currently i think a lot of businesses do not really 
know what their culture is, nor do they know how their culture is impacted by uh, their regionality, their locale, their national, um, you know, their national roots, um, and their team members. Um, and I think that everyone's got an idea maybe of what they think their culture is, but when you start to strip it back, what does that really mean? And how is that really influencing everything else you're doing? So I think without taking the time and the and and the exercise to go through and maybe take a hard look at what you think your culture is as a business, then it's very hard to ask your team members to employ that culture. <laughs> because if you don't know what you're talking about, then how do you ask other people to do it? You know, happiness is a very broad word. If you say your culture is steeped in happiness, that's great. But what does happiness actually mean in the context of your, your workplace? You know, similarly, Adria, I've always said that in those cases where, you know, an organization may not really know what their culture is, they do have a culture. It just may not be the culture they want, right? Or the the culture that they're they're trying to embrace. So, you know, turning that ship can be really, really difficult. Uh, but you mentioned something in there that's really interesting in terms of the regionality and where people are that can have an impact on the culture. And I know you've literally worked all over the world. Um, so yeah. I'm curious, what are some lessons you've taken away from working with so many different, you know, country cultures um, that might impact company culture? Um, well, first of all, I, I considered a, a gift that I have been able to work in so many different places with so many different people and organizations, because each one of those opportunities continues to inform me and educate me um, to a higher level. And ultimately gives me more information and knowledge to share with the next uh, group that I, I come in contact with. So uh, for that, I'm really appreciative. But I think the key things for me, uh, and I, I think I learned this early on uh, without knowing I was actually learning it, was taking the time to listen to the people that are, are around me, the people I'm working with. And, and that means not just strictly maybe the owners and, and managers, but also the people that are working on the front lines, the people that are in direct contact very often with guests, um, listening to what they have to say and then observing what's going on. Because sometimes hearing what people are saying or, or kind of trying to read between the lines, um, becomes very different depending on your observations of what is actually happening um, and what you're seeing happening. So doing things like reading, um, you know, guest reviews or, or reading employee um, comments, talking to people, um, taking the time to, to spend, and I mean spend hours watching what's going on all, all kind of helps to um for me gives me information about where i am and who i'm working with and what perhaps the goals are um whether those are seen goals or unseen goals and so culture you know it, it's so um it's so it's ingrained in us in a way that i don't think any of us even realize and that culture comes from not only how we were raised and grew up and the areas we were raised and grew up in, but also what's happening, you know, in our local community, what things are important to our local community, what things are important, important to our states, right? Um, I, I actually uh, fla have flagged this to several companies that work in the United States um, that were, that are putting different entities down in different states and, and reminding them that, California is not like Florida, is not like Louisiana, is not like Montana. Um, they're unique and individual. So you may have a company foundation, but you need to really think about how the culture is going to be massaged um, based on where you're going into. And you see that also, you know, nationally too. Work I do in India is going to be very different from work I've done in in Taiwan or in the United Kingdom or France or Canada um, because of all those influences. So I think that people need to take a moment to step back and not come in 
rushing with all their ideas and thoughts. And, I, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I mean, I come in and I see something and I have a gazillion things that run through my head about how to make things better, more effective, more efficient, um, you know, elevate the, the aesthetics or the performance elements. But I also have to remind myself that I need to first understand where I am. And then I can filter everything that I, I have learned uh, both the positive and the negative um, through through that particular sieve that is specific to where I am. Andrea, are there any stories that you like to share that uh, kind of everything that you've talked about in terms of listening, observing, and, and reading between the lines that uh, that helped you learn those lessons along the way? Well, there's been a couple really interesting. So I was in Taiwan and I was uh, a consultant for an organization that worked with um, all different kinds of entities, hotels and resorts and uh, sports venues and elements like that. And uh, there was a brand new hotel that was being opened down in the southern part of the country. And I was asked to come down and do, and I've been doing all kinds of preparatory work with them and you know all kinds of operational stuff, but they wanted me to come down and work with their some of their um, managers and supervisors on just some development developing some communication skills and some understanding about the guest experience, just kind of some top level stuff that sort of would get the ball rolling as, as they were starting to move into some of the heavier, um, you know, and, and more uh, defined role play, if you will, for the, for the different positions. So I go down there and this is going to be, this is, I think three days that I was down there with them. And, uh, and so I went down, it was just me <laughs> by myself. Um, and I went down and I learned a couple things. Um, first of all, ask if there's going to be an interpreter available. Um, that can always be handy when everybody in the room predominantly spoke uh, Chinese. And I didn't speak a whole lot of it. Um, and I was teaching communications, which made it very interesting and challenging. Um, but what happened was I worked in, I worked with my body and I worked with vocalizations and I worked with animation, if you will, um, to, with this group to actually have a highly successful uh, training program with very little in the way of, of language-based communication um, outside, you know, the gen general, you know, we're going to do this now, we're going to do this now kind of things. And most people follow along, but uh, it was, it was an amazing experience. I will be honest, I was exhausted um, by the time I finished it because it was a lot of work to try and do a variety of games. Um, there's one I do called Animal Farm where you break people up and you tell them to close their eyes and they have to find people that are in their respective animal groups, you know, cows, roosters, pigs, um, just by vocalizing. So if you can imagine me running around trying to demonstrate, you guys are all snorting like pigs. You guys are all making these cow noises. You guys are all doing these chicken noises. You guys are all doing these. That was kind of the gist of it. But that was really fascinating for me from a communication standpoint that it could actually be successful Again, just taking a moment to to sort of think and reset and think, all right, here's the circumstance I have, and these are the expectations of the people that have asked me to come down and do this. Um, these are the goals of the people in the room. How do I make that work? So that was amazing. Um, another one of my favorite ones is when I was brought to India for the first time uh, to work for Ramoshi Film City. I was told up front that I was going to have about a hundred performers that were going to be um, my my folks that were going to fill in all these these uh, different shows that they've asked me to develop, and they wanted to create Disney esque style shows. They wanted to have these shows that um, were big and fancy and beautiful and and you know, in all different kinds of spaces. And, and it was, um, it was really exciting and enticing for somebody, you know, like me to think, oh gosh, I've got this huge palette in front of me, right? This, this opportunity to create all these different things. So uh, what I didn't know until I got there was that the hundred people that I had 
um, were most mostly um, self-taught um, local folk dancers. So they didn't have a lot of formal training um, and, and certainly nothing of kind of the magnitude that, that uh, I guess naively I came in expecting <laughs> to have, right? Simple things like um, that we might take for granted, like pointing feet is something that is not necessarily intuitive uh, to people that have never had that kind of training. So it was very interesting to first take a moment to see all the different people that I had and kind of challenge their abilities and challenge their skill sets and, and kind of get a sense of where they were um, from a movement perspective, from a bulk perspective, uh, from a, from a, you know, what kind of different skills did they have? Uh, I had people that were, um, you know, gymnasts and acrobats and puppeteers and a whole variety of, of people, and then try to formulate a game plan around that to come up with shows. Um, ultimately what happened was we had, by the time I left, we had 17 shows running across the property. And the largest one was, um, a Vegas style production show that had four uh, production numbers, major production numbers in it, and three specialty acts that were in between it. And we used the show, we had a truncated version that we used daily in the park. And then the longer version we would do for events and, and uh, special programming. But I was standing back by the light board uh, watching the show at one point, and I had, after the show was done, uh, I had some um, British tourists approach me and ask me where I had imported all the dancers from. And I said, no, they're all local. It's, these are all, all people from, you know, from the area. And they're like, mm, it's not possible. They were really brilliant. They were really solid. Like, uh, so it's one of the best shows we've ever seen bar none. And that to me was such, uh, an elevation of the hard work that all the team members had done, all those performers and the stage managers and the designers and everybody that was involved, you know, had had reached this pinnacle that was recognized um, by others. And so that was a, a pretty amazing moment. But it it was an arc, you know, to get from, you know, point A to point to, to Z, essentially. Um, and in between, there were lots of lessons to learn, things like, um, you know, young ladies who during the very first number we were working on, which was Western Hoedown, I had three young ladies that came to me that were quite distressed um, about this jump sit that I had happening as part of the the number, right? Which is fairly typical. You know, you see a young lady jump up into the arms of a of a young man and, you know, spin around kind of thing. Um, but they were really, they couldn't bring themselves to do that. And when we started to kind of peel back the layers and when I started uh, listening to what they were saying and understanding, it became very clear that there were a couple issues here. Uh, one was they were concerned that their parents may not be able to find them a suitable match if they felt that they had been in any way, shape or form, um, weren't pure. And so their concern was that by this particular dance move that it, it could potentially take them off the table. Uh, the other thing, and this, this I think is really interesting is that they hadn't necessarily been given a lot of hygiene instruction. And during certain times of the month, um, that could be very awkward. So I found myself actually uh, talking a lot about hygiene and helping some young ladies understand uh, ways to uh, make themselves comfortable during certain times of the month. Interesting. So I also wound up taking them out of that show. Um, because I wanted them to feel really good about what they were doing. And I didn't want them to feel conflicted at all. And I put them into the puppet show, um, which was sock puppets and they weren't near anybody. So I figured it was a really safe territory to put them into. So those are a couple of my stories. Yeah, those are so interesting. So fascinating. Thank you for sharing those. Um, to me, that really speaks to the diversity of your experience, um, you know, and I'm sure those are just a couple of stories that you could share. Um, but also, I know you to be someone who is uh, such an advocate for diversity 
uh, at organizations. Um, and I'm curious, you know, where did that that advocacy come from? Was it your previous experiences where you just saw how important it is to bring so many different people together? Uh, or is there something else that kind of spurred that for you? You know, honestly, I think it's, I think it's how I grew up. Um, I think it was something that was sort of instilled in me by my parents and by the community I grew up in um, without it necessarily being an intentional lesson. Um, I think it wound up becoming a lesson that I really embraced wholeheartedly. So, um, you know, there were, there were things, um, I grew up in a, in a really amazing church. Um, it was called the Church of the Good Shepherd in Arcadia, California. And the thing that I remember about this church was that it was very open-hearted and very open-minded. And they did a lot of um, things to celebrate the community. And they did a lot of things to celebrate other cultures and to really try and get people's minds open and really embrace the thought that uh, we are all human beings and we should all be, um, we should all treat each other with kindness and respect. And our youth minister, uh, when we were going through confirmation, um, would do things like they took us to a synagogue to, to talk to um, the rabbi and, and talk about the Torah and talk about what their religion was all about and what they believed in. And um, she took us to a, a Middle Eastern museum um, to talk to uh, the folks there about um, what it is to be a Muslim and what the Quran says and um, information about Islam. And, and we spoke to people about Buddhism and, and Hinduism and all these different things, you know, and I was, I was young at the time. So it was very interesting to hear love that and sort of understand that the church I grew up in was very welcoming to all of these different philosophies and thoughts and religions and and the power behind them to shape people um, into positive beings. That was really the messaging that they were working on. Also, as I was growing up, um, I have uh, a family member um, who uh, has spina bifida. And when we were kids, uh, you know, he was in this honking wheelchair. I mean, this thing was, I don't know, it weighed more than all of us put together, I think. But my brothers and I um, always wanted to make sure that David was included. So this was before ADA. Um, and we would haul his chair up, like, you know, <laughs> upstairs or wherever, um, you know, or we would make sure that the games we were playing, um, he was easily included in and a whole variety of things like that without understanding or really acknowledging the fact that he was in a wheelchair, um, just knowing that we wanted him to be included. And as I continue kind of down that journey, I had a um, the opportunity I was working at Walt Disney World as a choreographer, I was part of the very special arts festival that was being performed on the castle courtyard in front of Cinderella's castle. And I was um, right next to kind of the green room area uh, where we had some performers waiting. And I was telling, um, I think our stage manager, that I was heading up to the roof of Cinderella's castle to check out the surfaces up there for where my, where my chimney sweeps are going to perform. And I, as somebody in the room said, oh, I want to go with you. And so I kind of leaned around and I'm like, yeah, sure, you can go. Uh, much to the horror of everybody that was in the room, um, because uh, the gentleman whose name was Tom Sullivan is blind. And, and everyone is like whispering, you can't take him up there, he's blind. And I'm like, why not? I don't see the problem. You know, if he's comfortable with it, I'm comfortable with it. What's the issue, right? Um, you know, and I'm sure they're thinking in their heads, oh, you know, he's going to walk off the edge of the castle roof and it's going to, you know, hurt himself on the way up and all these different things, right? Um, but I was like, hey, Tom, if you want to go, let's go. So we went up, you know, the the castle stairs, which are, you know, kind of janky and had to crawl out through this little tiny sort of, you know, opening uh, to get on the roof. And, um we came out on the roof and we were standing up there and it was quiet and, and neither of us said anything for a moment. And then all of a sudden Tom said, this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it struck me 
that he used the word seen to describe where we were. Um, and it, and it just, you know, that opened up conversation that he and I had up there, um, which was really amazing. And we talked about tap dance. <laughs> he wanted to learn how to tap dance. And I said, sure, I can teach you. Cause that's, you know, it's a sound-based uh, movement. And so we talked about tap dance. We talked about a whole variety of other things before we headed back down. But it just reminded me, you know, when when we had uh, been up there, that we we should not be setting boundaries on anybody. People set their own boundaries. People understand their own capabilities. We need to not judge people for the containers they're in, and that goes to what color somebody is, what gender somebody is. Uh, what kind of clothing they're wearing? Um, you know, we need to we need to look at what's inside of that vessel to really understand who somebody is. And granted, you know, a, a lot of our life is spent judging people the minute we see them. Right? We all have those biases. Somebody has a baseball hat on, you know, for a team that you don't like, you instantly have an aversion to that person, whether you realize it or not, because they're like, ooh, you know, that team, and. And so it's learning how to look underneath the hat, right? It's learning to look past the t-shirt. It's learning how to look beyond the skin color and understanding who the person is that's actually standing in front of you. And that takes time and energy. Um, it takes working with people who have those perceived disabilities to really be able to appreciate them. I worked with a, a group called Deaf Action Group um, in uh, Deaf Action Center, excuse me. And um, one of the most powerful things I learned was the person that I was working with, um, um, I had asked if I might be able to come in and speak with them and get um, some of their, their clients' thoughts about what it's like to, um, to, to navigate the world as a deaf person. And, and he said, you know, let me do this. He said, the community is, is a very tight community uh, for a multitude of reasons. He said, and I, I'd rather have them share that with you. He said, but um, why don't you come to our barbecue? So you can come, they can see you, you can have an opportunity to kind of mix with them a little bit. And then let's sort of see how things go from there. So I went to their barbecue, uh, which was fantastic, great barbecue, um, and had an opportunity to start to talk to some of these folks. And some of the things that they shared with me that they started to open up and, and talked to me about over the course of, you know, several meetings um, was that they stated themselves a lot of times because people that don't understand um, the deaf community make assumptions and will say things to them like you're stupid or call them stupid or, um, or any number of things that, that tie to intellect because some of them cannot articulate language very well because they've never heard it. And so when they speak, it, it doesn't come out cleanly or succinctly the way somebody who has grown up hearing might expect. And so all of a sudden they put these labels on them. And I will be honest with you, um, that hurt me in my core to hear that. Uh, because some of the people that I was I was interfacing with in that room were some of the brightest people I had ever met. You know, mathematicians and scientists and teachers and, you know, all kinds of, of different individuals that just really were amazing human beings. So I guess I guess all this to say is that, you know, as humans, you know, we don't necessarily have a choice day to day who we interact with but in terms of being an employer um we do have the choice to hire people beyond what we think who we think they are um and we should be employing elements like behavioral hiring and training not only for our frontline team members but also for our managers and and um uh, and upper level um, team members because that's where the humanity will come into play so that was very long-winded. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Let me well, get off my soapbox now. 
I was going to say, this might sound like another loaded question here because I, I'm just taking in everything that you just said and and uh, everything with, with your upbringing, with your church being able to be exposed to so many other religions, uh, with your family member, David, uh, you know, bound to the wheelchair, making sure that he was always included with Tom, hearing that it, it's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen, working with the deaf community, all of that, uh, you know, it, it, everything that you say, some of it, you know, sounds like, 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 of course, like, of course, we're, we're going to see people beyond the, you know, the, the container that we're in. And it's almost like an easier said than done type thing. So curious as far as uh, the ways that you've been able to work with organizations to implement that mindset into the culture to make sure that it isn't just, uh, you know, a, a, you know, of course, of course, we're going to embrace diversity, but actually seeing seeing beyond what we're able to see ourselves, you know, as, as individuals and uh, and implementing that into the framework? Uh, yes, Josh, that's a very loaded question. Um, <laughs> but I think I think what's so so my first my first thought um, in looking at this is it's education. Right. It's education. And unfortunately, in our industry, training, which is education, very often falls to the wayside from a budgetary perspective. Because it's not it's not necessarily a value that people can see overtly, right? It's not like you know you've you just put in this new ride and you've seen now you've seen increase in ticket sales, right? It's not the same kind of thing. However, um, I have seen organizations put a lot of money into certain types of training. But very often it's one and done. And I'm sure you both have experienced this, Matt. I'm, I know you have. It's like one and done, right? But the truth is a two-hour, three-hour, full-day workshop is not going to stick with somebody unless you continue to essentially poke the bear, right? <laughs> Keep reminding people of what's going on and, and have facilitation uh, to continue to um, address those particular topics in a variety of ways. Um, Part of that is also through through multi-level learning. So making sure that not everything is just spoken at people, right? It's making sure that you're including visuals, you're, you're including um, activities, you're including uh, individual um, bits and pieces that people should be working on in addition to group things so that you're hitting all the different kinds of learning styles um, that people learn best from in order to make sure that the messaging is is getting out to everybody in the best possible way. And so I think that organizations that want to really pr promote and propel uh, behavioral training forward uh, need to be very thoughtful about how they're actually laying out this training beyond, you know, their orientation and, you know, here's your, you know, here's, here's your, your initial uh, training package, right? So it's a much bigger proposition and it's a much bigger question for organizations to take into account. Um, one of the things that I work on is creating ways to incorporate training that doesn't cost any additional money. It's just part of the way, it's just part of the operation. And it's, I've seen great success with it. Um, especially for organizations that continue to use it and continue to grow it and and see it as a an integral part of their their educational programming and growth opportunities. So, um, does that kind of answer? Absolutely. What yeah. We're looking for. Okay. Yeah. yeah thank you. Okay. <laughs> So, Adria, we are sort of winding down here, but there's one other topic that I want to make sure that we uh, touch on just because I know, again, you're you're a pretty big advocate for it, and that is mental health. Um, we know that our operational managers can't be experts in this and, you know, diagnosing it and treating it, certainly, but they're getting people coming to them and saying, I need a mental health day or I need, you know, I need I need some sort of accommodation for that. So um, is there something that we can maybe give to operational managers or tips or advice that, you know, here's how, here's what you need to know about the mental health of your team in five minutes or less, <laughs> just because we're, <laughs> we're running a little low on time. And that's, and that's it. Otherwise we could talk all day on this. I'm sure. I know I'm yakky. I'm sorry. I, I, no, that's I, okay. I we love it. We love it. <laughs> um, 
So I think where, where mental health is concerned, you know, I, I've become very, um, very aware of mental health issues. And um, I guess in some ways, even consider a subject matter expert when it comes to that, but it's not because I am a mental health expert in the least, it's because I'm approaching everything from an operational standpoint. And what we can do as operators, to your point, Matt, I think the key here is, again, observation, right? Observation and listening, building those particular tools out for anyone in the management team to be able to recognize changes um, in individuals or listening when somebody really comes in and says, active listening when somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm having an issue. It's not our our place to determine what those issues are. It's not our place to determine even necessarily what kind of um, what kind of help we can offer outside of resources. And so I highly advocate for organizations to look at local resources that are available. Um, ideally, things that that because uh, in a lot of instances, a lot of our team members, maybe if they're part time, they're not necessarily covered by our health insurance that might have an employee assistance program available to it. Um, but some organizations can actually work with their insurance companies to make sure that employee assistance programs are available for anybody that's within their organization, not, not just limited to people that might be full time. Um, but also reaching out to places like um, the Red Cross or uh, or local community centers uh, that very often have programs, governmental bodies that have um, availability to people. There's a whole variety of places and resources that are available. People just open their minds up to spending a little bit of time researching and finding uh, what's in their own neighborhood. Perfect. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for sharing that. I, I know that it's going to be just so helpful to to so many people who are uh, who are listening to this. So, like Matt said, we are starting to wind this down here. I, I feel like I have like a thousand more questions for you. So, hopefully, maybe we can do a part two some sometime again in the future. Uh, in the meantime, though, if people want to get a hold of you directly, if they want to learn more about original productions, where would you send them? Um, well, they can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to find me. So it's very easy, Adria Gibbs. Uh, just don't put an N in my name because you won't find me. Um, but uh, but that's usually the easiest way. Um, people are always welcome to email me at anoriginal, A-N dot A-L-R-I-G-I-N-A-L at gmail.com. Um, for those of you that are visually thinking of that, original is like or original, the word original, but you replace the O-R with an A-L. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that's and that's another long story. Um, but that's those are, are probably the easiest ways to uh, to get a hold of me. Perfect. Well, we will put those uh, those links and your email into the show notes. So if anybody is interested in getting a hold of you, they will certainly have that. So, Adria, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know that the, the time has just flown by. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time and all of your insight. And for everybody who is out there watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Bros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.